And I mentioned in my live, this is the only sentence where you can seriously put the word but and puckering in the same sentence. School glue, glue that you probably ate as a kid, which would be wonderful, but nobody would know what I do for a living really. Hello and welcome to the Leathercraft Masterclass in this month, February Q&A with questions taken from Instagram stories. Now, if you're new to the Leathercraft Masterclass, new to this channel, click the link below and get your free guide for selecting tools, selecting leather, what to look out for, and everything you need to know to get started in luxury leather goods. So if you're interested in going from basic leather work to luxury leather goods, check out leathercraftmasterclass.com where we have a series of courses starting with your basics of hand stitching, skiving, sharpening, what adhesives to use, different edge finishing techniques, etc. before moving on to the smaller, mid-level and large leathercraft projects. So check out leathercraftmasterclass.com and get started with your free guide for selecting leather, selecting tools, and then we can move on to the knowledge. So in today's Q&A, as I mentioned, I've taken 10 questions this month, which I've been gathering yesterday. Um, so if you're not following me on Instagram and you're interested in putting some questions in there, Go to Instagram at Leathercraft Masterclass, start following me and turn on your live notifications so you can set your notifications so that you get a little ding-a-ling when I go live to make sure that you don't miss out, okay? Now, this will also be available as a podcast, leathercraftmasterclass.com, click on the podcast and you can actually get an audio version of this. So if you don't have time to watch it all, you can download it onto your phone, head to the gym when gyms are open again, or when you're driving or doing whatever you need to be doing, you can actually have me in your ear whispering sweet nothings. So <laughs> we'll see how that goes. Right, so I'm gonna go live right now uh, on Instagram so I can take some live questions, which you're welcome to join in uh, next month when you're ready. So, checking connection, you are now live. All right, so a few people joining. 43 people already, wow, only a few seconds in. That's encouraging to see. So the first question is about tooling leather. So uh, this individual wants me to talk a little bit about tooling leather. Now, uh, I did actually start my personal leather craft journey in Canada, okay? Um, and Canadian leather craft is generally quite heavily influenced by its neighboring country, which is the United States. Uh, and tooling leather is very, very popular there, especially in Western style leather work. Um, so that's where I learned. So originally the shop that I used to buy leather from uh, did courses there. And my main interest was case making, rifle cases and things like that, uh, knife sheaths, uh, which I did there in a few lessons. But it was very heavily towards the tooling side. So I did start experimenting with uh, tooling leather so casing leather, wetting it, tooling it, decoration, uh, and all that kind of thing. But it was never, um, it wasn't that I wasn't particularly good at it, it wasn't my main interest. My main interest was uh, the cutting, the skiving, the stitching, the edge finishing, things like that. Um, I guess maybe the, the kind of leather goods that I grew up with uh, from my grandfathers and fathers with their attache cases and luggage and things that I was always fascinated with as a kid. Uh, that kind of thing was more, more my interest. So I have had a little bit of a, a dabble in, in tooling leather, um, but I don't have a lot of experience with it. It's just not my, 
it's just not my main interest. Some people are very, very good at that kind of thing. And I can really appreciate the designs and the patterns and things like that. It's just not my personal thing. You know, not everybody's going to be into it, uh, everything. There's nothing wrong with it, obviously. Uh, and I can appreciate beautiful tooling work. Absolutely. Uh, I marvel at some of the, uh, the top artisans who can do that kind of thing. Um, but in, I think one of the main differences between that style of leather work, and I won't say American because American is quite varied. Um, in, in the types of leather work. It's not like all Americans do tooling leather work, obviously not. It's actually more varied than most countries, I think, uh, in their style. But the, the, that kind of Western style, I think the focus is a lot more on the artisan's skill and the artistry, where the focus in Europe is a little bit more on kind of putting the leather itself as the centerpiece rather than the art, if you know what I mean. So. If you imagine the leather is the picture and the craftsmanship and the finish is the frame that brings it all together, that's the European style. Whereas I think in tooling, the, the, the leather is the canvas itself and that's where the, the artisan expresses their art. So it's just a different look and a different take on it, uh, maybe a different philosophy if you will, but uh, that is my experiences with it. I enjoyed it, don't get me wrong, um, it's just, not my, not my jazz, not my, not my thing, I guess. But, uh, but I do enjoy it. Uh, hi, maybe a silly question, but I'm very new to Leathercraft. What kind and what thickness of thread do you choose forward slash use? Uh, it depends on the project and it also depends on the thickness of leather, the look that I'm going for, uh, but also the size of the pricking iron that I'm using. Now, I do have a series of courses which I'll plug for you. Uh, the techniques of hand stitching is actually the first video that I ever came out with and I have a chart. So, and it's, it's by no means, there's no general rule, but it's kind of like a guide where you can go, this pricking iron size goes with this thickness of thread, this with this, this with this. And then obviously you can then break those rules and, uh, and, and do your own thing with your own experiences. Uh, I think it was Picasso said, first you must learn the rules uh, before you can then break them. So <laughs> uh, I have, do have a guide on there which will uh, explain everything you need to know about that and then you can experiment. But it, it is down mainly down to experience and personal preference. But the type of use that it's gonna get, if it's a heavy high wear item or an area on a, on a project, for example, then you know thicker thread is gonna be a little bit better uh, on that. Uh, how is your business going on there in your country? Yeah, business is good. Thank you very much. Thank you for asking. Okay, so that's uh, tooling leather and my opinions on it. I must say my uneducated opinions on it because I don't have a lot of uh, experience with tooling leather. Okay, so how to work with chrome tan leather and how is it different to vegetable tan leather? Now, I have talked a little bit about chrome tanned leather on these Q&As before and what I, you know, where I would use it, where I wouldn't use it, what it's good for, what it's not good for. And to be honest, I, I, I love working with vegetable tan leather and at a push, it's probably closer to my heart, if you know what I mean. It's, it's more therapeutic to work with because much like a dog, it's more obedient uh, versus chrome tan, which is a bit more like a cat, it kind of wants to do its own thing. Uh, very difficult to train it. Uh, <laughs> But 
you know, vegetable tan leather, it's, it's very easy to work with. It's great for beginners as well. Doesn't mean it's a beginner's leather, obviously it's not, but uh, vegetable tan leather is good for beginners because it just, it's easier to scribe, it's easier to mold. It's, you know, it can be quite delicate, uh, so it's easy to mess up, but it's, uh, it's a good one for people who are new to the craft as well. Chrome tan leather, in my opinion, takes a little bit more skill overall because it's more resistant to skiving easily. It's more resistant to uh, edge, you know, edge finishing. It won't burnish, for example, so your options are a little bit more limited. It is a bit more flexible. Um, so you will have to have to add stiffeners to it if you want a more structured item, for example, a bag. So there's more things you have to think about when it comes to chrome tan. So it is, if you want to make fine leather craft with chrome tan, it is a bit more of an experienced craftsman's leather to work with, especially the very soft, thin skins. Um, but how do you work with it? it, it virtually the same way. I mean, it's going to be... Yeah, it's more softer and more pliable, so it's good for flipped bags, for example, so that it doesn't crease anywhere near as much as uh, vegetable tanned wood. It's more difficult to scribe and cut by hand, for sure, because it can actually change dimensions if you're not pressing hard enough down on the ruler or straight edge, straight edge that you're using. Uh, it can stretch, so that's one of the characteristics of it, so you have to think about that. But the pros are, it is stronger, so it has a higher tensile strength than uh, vegetable tan leather. It's more abrasion resistant for sure. If you want something that's scratch resistant, that's gonna avoid scuffs the most, then definitely chrome tan. Uh, it's more heat resistant, so it's less likely to burn if you get the wrong temperature with a creaser, for example. And it's obviously more water resistant uh, than vegetable tan leather. It's less affected by that. So that's definitely, um, one of the good things about that. So how to work with chrome tan leather, uh, how is it different to vegetable tan leather? Hopefully that's uh, explained a little bit more about that. So a question on here, veg tan leather shape firming wet, wet and let it dry or wet and heat it in the oven. Definitely do not heat, uh, add any heat when you've added water to vegetable tan leather. Uh, as an experiment, get uh, a creaser hot enough that it makes uh, a brown line in undyed vegetable tan leather. So get it you know, hot enough that you're making a dark line. And then take a little bit of water and just dab it where you're about to crease, okay? And without stopping, go across it. Where the water is, you'd think it would actually cool it down. It doesn't, it transfers heat much faster and it will burn it virtually instantly. You actually dig into the leather sometimes. Uh, so when you add heat to vegetable tan leather, it will darken, but when you've got water content in there, uh, it's, it's probably gonna shrink if you tried that. But the slower that you allow vegetable tan leather to dry, the less it's gonna shrink and the less it's gonna lose its natural oils as well. Um, so that's another thing. So, you know, allow things to gradually come up to um, uh, normal humidity levels. Uh, Vinimo Thread, your thoughts? Anything that really looks overly synthetic, I'm not really a big fan of, but that's just personal preference. I, generally, I prefer a more natural look to it, but if you think that it goes well with your projects, it's a very strong thread. It's a filament polyester, which means it, the, it doesn't have a strand length. Each strand is, you know, if you have 2000 meters of Vinimo, each strand is 2000 meters long. Um, whereas on uh, natural fibers, obviously, with the exception of 
uh, filament silk, I think, uh, you have lengths of fibre that start and stop and then they're all bunched together and then twist tightly for friction so they don't come apart. But that short fibre length um, means that it, I guess, refracts the light a little bit more than reflect, reflects it, if my uh, terminology is correct. Um, so it has a more of a matte look to it, which is my preference. So that's uh, how I would, uh, what I would say. Hello. Hi from Norway. Cheers from England. Okay, so next question moving on is, uh, <laughs> and I mentioned in my live, this is the only sentence where you can seriously put the word but and puckering in the same sentence. Uh, how to prevent, it's a 14 year old coming out of me, how to prevent a butt stitched seam from puckering. So for those of you on YouTube, I'll put in a little short video clip of me butt stitching. Um, it's basically where you usually, it's, it's where you wrap leather around say a cylinder or a handle, say a hammer handle, which is a course I recently did uh, on, uh, well not recently, uh, maybe over a year ago now. Wow, time's flying so fast. But uh, I will link it up here, uh, so you can go and click on that if you want to and watch the free butt stitching tutorial, uh, which is butt stitching uh, alligator skin, I think it's alligator, not crocodile, yeah, alligator skin onto a hammer handle. So I'll link it up there for you. But, uh, but it's where you wrap it around and then you have two raw edges that come in contact. And the idea is you stitch and your thread goes underneath through one hole, underneath the join and then up the other side. And then you have your stitches flanking the join. Now, sometimes it will pucker, which means you get a rippling effect as you're adding tension in certain areas and pulling your stitchings tight. You'll notice you'll get a bit of a wave forming. Now I've written down a few uh, possible reasons for that um, or ways that you can avoid it. One is, is using stiffer leather, the softer leather is, the more it's going to pucker, the more it's going to yield to the added stresses, which are at intervals uh, with your stitching. So if you have a longer stitch, as in four millimeters, you're probably gonna see more puckering compared to using, say, a three millimeter pricking iron uh, or stitching chisel or round dent iron is, is probably one of the best for that. But uh, yeah, you're gonna, you're gonna see less rippling with a smaller iron. Uh, so stiffer leather can help with that, so avoiding leather that's too soft. Using thicker leather, okay, so thin leather is going to yield more as well. Uh, so even if it's stiff leather, if it's very thin, you're going to see that and you're going to see the thickness of the thread underneath pushing through. Uh, less tension, so if you're adding too much tension, then you're going to see the leather being pulled tight in certain areas and you're going to see that puckering effect. Uh, using thinner thread, so thicker thread is going to take up more room underneath. So as the thread goes underneath, it's pushing the leather above it upwards, and then that could worsen the effect. And also finishing. Um, so when you've finished your seam, that's not the end of it. You want to hammer down your thread to get it nice and level to avoid friction and prolonged use. But at the same time, it's good to hammer down the seam, the join that you're actually pulling together with the stitch. Now, for those of you who don't know what I'm talking about on Instagram and or on the podcast, if you're listening to this, if you're not visualizing what I'm saying, head to uh, Leathercraft Masterclass on YouTube. I will link it for you guys on YouTube, but I have a video there on how to butt stitch leather. So if you watch that, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about and you can see me finishing it. And finally, how to prevent the seam from puckering. If it has puckered, 
uh, and you're using leather that is you know relatively heat resistant you can add some heat with uh, electric edge creaser with an ironing tip or whatever you need to heat up to just flatten it down uh, billionaire brother says hello philip hello billionaire brother okay hopefully you're getting some of those billions from your brother <laughs> Uh, how to edge coloring for synthetic product. Uh, not 100% sure what you mean by edge coloring for synthetic product. Are you talking about applying edge finishing to non-leather items such as fabrics? If so, let me know. Uh, without further ado, I'll move on. Uh, so the next question is, uh, which should you complete first? the seam or the edge. Okay, so this is the, the leather craft equivalent of the chicken and egg uh, question, which came first, the chicken or the egg, the egg or the chicken or the chicken or the egg. It really depends on a lot of things, uh, and I'll explain what I mean. Generally, it's better to finish an edge after stitching where possible, but there are some scenarios where you need to stitch the, uh, finish the edge before you stitch, okay? Um, because when you, when you stitch two pieces of leather together, which is generally what stitching is for, sometimes the tension can add a ripple uh, in the top if your stitch is very close to the top. And if you've just finished your edge, you've got to refinish it again. So generally, you know, after stitching, if you can cut and trim your edges after stitching, that's probably about the best platform to then begin your edge finishing process. Uh, the only downside to that is if you accidentally get dye on your stitches or edge paint on your stitches, you may have to uh, undo the stitching and restitch, but it's not going to be a common problem in my opinion. So generally, you know, it, in my opinion, it's better to finish the edge afterwards, but it's really up to you. It doesn't make a whole lot of difference. Um, sometimes I like to finish an edge and then stitch depending on the project. And then if the edge needs a little bit more attention, then I might give it another final sanding, another coat, maybe another polish, if, if it's a burnished edge, for example. Um, so it really depends. Uh, a turned edge, for example, would be complete before stitching. So that's an example of an edge that uh, you would really have much of a say in it. It's going to be uh, complete. Leather going around hardware, so that's another one. So if you, for example, uh, you have a bag handle and the end of your handle wraps around hardware. So let's say this is a cross section of a piece of hardware. The leather goes around, wraps, and then gets stitched in. It's going to be very difficult to finish that edge if uh, it's wrapped around a piece of hardware. So you would want to finish that edge first, and then you can focus on the stitching. So that could be a briefcase handle, could be a handle on a handbag, for example. So there are always variations. So there's no black and white. You should stitch then edge finish. Sometimes you need to edge finish and then stitch. And then sometimes there's a turned edge, your edge is already finished before you stitch. If you have to stitch after, we can't hammer or use the pliers on the seam, right? It really depends what you've done with the edge. Um, you know, edge paint is quite resilient in that, in that sense because it's synthetic and it's flexible. It doesn't, you know, you can hammer it, it doesn't have a problem. If you've really heavily waxed and polished a burnish, for example, um, on, on a part that's not particularly flexible, then hammering it could compress the leather enough that you actually see cracking, so you might need to reheat the wax in there. Next question is, what types of glue do you use and when do you use one variety over another? Okay, so what 
types of glue do you use and when would you choose to use one type over another type of glue? Okay, most commonly for 90% of what I do, it's going to be a mixture of contact adhesive and PVA glue. PVA glue, a lot of people outside of the UK don't know what PVA glue, polyvinyl acetate, which makes even less sense. Um, white glue, Elmer's glue, school glue, glue that you probably ate as a kid, um, you know, that kind of thing, that white sticky glue. It uh, comes under a number of different names. Essentially, it's the same thing. It is not wood glue. Wood glue is generally PVA with resin additives that makes for a higher tack on wood. It's usually also a little bit less flexible, more brittle uh, to avoid creep in woodworking. So, uh, you know, when I say PVA, I don't mean wood glue. Similar, similar in a lot of ways, but PVA glue is... Uh, is a really good glue to use. It's water-based, easy to clean up. There's a lot of benefits to it, but it doesn't have initial stick. If you put PVA on two pieces of leather or even one, put them together, you can still take it apart. You've got some open time, some, some working time uh, that you can play around with. But there are some things where you need clamping force with, you know, say for example, you want to make a handle and you've wrapped leather around a core and you're using PVA, well, you're going to have to put a load of clips along the top to hold it in together. And then some parts are going to be heavily clipped and it's, you know, it's not going to be ideal. In that situation, instead of using external clamping force, the internal clamping force could be um, salt like this, which is solvent-based contact adhesive, okay? You can use water-based or solvent-free contact adhesive more accurately. Uh, I tend to use solvent because it's faster, stronger, and it works on non-porous materials, whereas water-based is more for porous. Uh, so, you know, leather on leather or leather on material, but it won't do leather on steel or leather on plastic like uh, uh, solvent will. But yeah, generally contact adhesive where I need something to press together and hold. Okay, so recently when I made this watch strap, there's a turnover at the back that goes around the spring bar. And when it comes down, and I've used contact adhesive, it stays there. And then I can hammer it in, then I can put the lining in, and then I can stitch it, etc. Uh, with PVA, I would have to then fold it over and try and make sure it's evenly clamped over the area that I want to stick. It would be very complicated to do or very annoying to do. Um, whereas contact adhesive, it's an instant bond, which means it's, it's, it's clamping everything and holding everything together with a, a very, very tight force. Usually about 80% of full strength is in the initial contact. Um, so about 48 hours later, you'll get 100% of your strength. Uh, so yeah, so contact adhesive for the convenience and the instant bond. Uh, and PVA is probably where I would use, uh, I would use it more for larger areas. So if you're doing a really large area where um, you know, that would just cause too much, too many fumes. I would probably use PVA or water-based contact adhesive, solvent-free contact adhesive. Uh, and PVA is also going to add stiffness as well in your leather. So it works even in, in fabric. Sometimes people, when they're making fabric projects and crafts, if you mix water and PVA and dip your fabric in it, it actually works as a fabric stiffener. It has a very similar effect on leather as well. So if you want something to be slightly stiffer, uh, then PVA can do that for you as well. And finally, PVA, I have two types. I have waterproof, which means uh, it will be uh, highly resistant or waterproof. You could submerge it and the bond won't undo. And then I have uh, what you call washable PVA. 
which is very strong, but it can be reversible. So for some things where, like the internal lining of an attache case or a few other projects where over time you might want to replace the lining or you might want to replace parts, you get a damp sponge, dampen it, not till it's soaking wet, but damp enough that after about half an hour you can begin peeling it back like a sticky label. Now if it gets wet, it doesn't all fall apart. It's not as sensitive to water as that, but it just makes it easier to repair. And on some projects, uh, you know, I think that's, it really adds something to the design and to the luxury design. I think it was one of the chief designers at Hermes that once said, was told by his grandfather, I believe, that luxury is that which can be repaired, which is interesting because if it can't be repaired, like if you create a wallet and it's completely bonded, what happens if you need to change one of the compartments in there? Would, would it be possible to do that? Is something, um, and this is an interesting thing to think about, is something truly luxurious if it can't be repaired? Because technically that makes it a throwaway item. Uh, have you ever used tallow and pearl glue for edge finishing bridle? I'm struggling with that lovely shine using token on beeswax. You know, tallow and pearl glue, you know, very old traditional bridal leather and, and case making techniques. Yeah, pearl glue and rabbit skin glue with dye and all that kind of thing. Very, very old school. I haven't you know, worked with it too much. Pearl glue is, you know, you've got the smell, you've got to keep it hot while you're using it and all that kind of thing. So it's, it's not really convenient. If you're getting great results from token on beeswax, I mean, they're, they're, they're pretty standard now. Uh, I think it's just the next generation of edge finishing, but back in the day when they didn't have, uh, you know, things like tokenol or other edge finishing compounds, then, you know, they probably would have been using tokenol had they had it. So, you know, personal preference really. Hanadi says, hello, Philip. Hello, Hanadi. Um, one more, what are the differences between Indian leather and American leather? I have used neither, so um, I don't exactly know. Okay, so the next question I'll move on is, I've never heard of a turned edge watch strap please tell us more. Okay, so the latest course which came out a few days ago is the turned edge watch strap. Now, not everybody is gonna know what a turned edge watch strap is, okay? I probably could have done a better uh, job explaining what it is, uh, but there is a video on Instagram and on YouTube with a, a preview of the course, but it's, it's making this, okay? So this is a turned edge, and as you can see, the surface, which is alligator, simply turns around the edge. It's as simple as that. Uh, and then once it turns around and it's on the edge and then it folds in underneath the lining before it is then stitched through, which means that the edge that you're looking in there is the grain layer, the surface that is also here, that is also on the other side of the watch strap. So it's technically a little, a little bit more, it is more challenging than simply dyeing and burnishing or adding a layer of edge paint. Uh, each one of those has their own technical skill, but the turned edge just adds a little bit more finesse because technically it doesn't have an edge in itself. It's just completely all the way around. So it gives a little bit more flow to the design, I find. Uh, and just gives more of a, a, a seamless look to it, which is a little bit more luxurious. It also takes certain skills to be able to do it, uh, which, which I find 
just adds something more to the luxurious element of the technique itself. Now, back in the day in the UK, decades and decades ago, you would have different categories of leather goods. You would have fancy leather goods, okay? Ooh, fancy. So fancy leather goods, and you would have cut edge leather goods. So there are two grades of leather goods. Today we would call it haute maroquinerie, or you would call it high leather craft, fine leather craft, luxury leather goods. But back in the day, the official term was fancy leather goods, which would probably sound a bit odd today if you said, do you have any fancy leather goods in stock? But fancy leather goods would be the best grades of leather, the best designs, the most expensive types of leather, but also one of the characteristics that defined the grade was the edges were always turned, okay? Grade number two, the second tier of luxury, was always a cut edge, and that cut edge might be then burnished and polished uh, using various techniques. And then I think around the 70s, I believe it was the Italians that started developing uh, what we know today as edge paint. Uh, it was something to speed up the process, to make it quicker, so that you could, instead of finishing an edge, you just run it through a machine or use a stick to pl place it on there and it just finished off the edge and made the whole process much faster. It was never really designed as something luxurious, it was a time-saving effort uh, to make an acceptable edge. Um, and that's always been one of my main reasons for preferring the turned edge over using edge paint. Now today, edge paint has become a little bit more advanced, so it's easier to get done well. Uh, and it's also become a little bit of a niche art within leathercraft, like a subculture of people who really love and want to get that beautiful, perfect, perfect edge uh, with edge paint. And some people just absolutely love that. It's like a, a sub-niche within leathercraft, which is quite interesting, really. Um, but my, my heart has always been with the turned edge. It's very traditionally English, and it always represented the top tier. Um, now today, you'd see really expensive bags, like the Birkin, for example, has like an eight millimeter cut edge with multiple layers of edge paint. I think if the Birkin was designed today, they would definitely not have done that. I don't think it was necessarily put out as like an apex predator of luxury, um, but it became so iconic and so wanted that the prices were driven up with the demand, but they can't really change the design now because it would almost be like admitting that they didn't make it as good as they could have. Um, I always think it looks odd with this massive thing of edge paint over the top, um, but that's just me personally. But I think if they were to realize that it would have been their crown uh, of, of the brand, I think they would have done a turned edge on it. And they do a turned edge on the Kelly, I think which came out later, could be wrong. Uh, so yeah, I've never heard of a turned edge watch shirt. Please tell us more. It's essentially just where you're, you're turning an edge, then you have a lining. That lining can also be turned edge and then it is stitched through um, and it just makes uh, a much nicer looking and there's nothing to peel off as well. So that's the course on how to make this watch strap itself. So it has a stitched in keeper along the top, as you can see there, and we don't have any stitches that go across the line of pull at the top or at the bottom, okay? Because when you perforate across the line of pull, it's a bit like, uh, I don't know, pulling apart toilet tissue, <laughs> to give a derogatory reference. Uh, it's a perforation, it's where it's going to break most likely. 
Uh, no, it doesn't always break, but it's, uh, it's a good idea to avoid stitching across the line of pull when you can. So that's one of the things that I teach in this course. So that course is available now, guys. If you want to check out the preview for it, it's on Instagram, it's on YouTube, or you can go onto leathercraftmasterclass.com and check out the preview for that course. Okay, part two is coming soon. So it's a two-part course. Um, so it will be coming out shortly. Uh, da, 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 da. Sean says, totally agree, it's so thick. Yeah, talking about the top of the Birkin. Yeah, that's, that's way too much real estate to be using on edge paint. I think they use a ridiculous number of layers to get there. And from the Birkins that I've seen, it's, they're, I mean, they're, they're decent edges. They're not perfect. Uh, it's very, it would be, you would have to spend so much time getting a real perfect edge on something that thick because, you know, you can, if it's 90% their absolute best that they can do, to get to 95 requires two times more, you know, the length of time that you've already spent on it. To get to 97.5 requires four times the amount of time. And it's just like to try and get, you know, closer to 100%, you're spending so much time, it would just be impossible to do. It must be a nightmare knowing that you could just put leather over the top of it with no problem at all. And it would even look better, but they've got to keep doing this edge painting thing. Okay, nice. I'm ready for part two of the watch trap course. Good. I'm glad you're looking forward to it. Thanks. Looking forward to part two of the turned edge watch strap. Ah, oh, good. Uh, what type of leather do you use as a watch strap lining? I do go into different things that you can use in the course, which I don't have time for now, but there are lots of different things that you can use, but there are definitely leathers that you shouldn't be using to avoid the creasing when it goes around a curve. On this one, I'm using Zermatt calf, uh, which is uh, by Tanneries Haas, or Ha, I don't know how you pronounce it, Haas I think it is, which doesn't sound French, it sounds Dutch. But anyway, um, yeah, it's uh, Zermatt calf. It's designed for watch straps, because one of the issues with watch straps is you can't really use chrome tan leather because some people are, have an allergic reaction to it. Now Zermatt is, is chrome and vegetable tan, but they treat it so that it's hypoallergenic. So it's, you know, one of those special things. But there are leathers that are just as good, if not better, that are widely available. But I explain that more in the course itself. Uh, Holland Leathercraft Watch Tap Lining Zermatt. Yes, that's the one. Which is, I believe, named after a mountain. Is it in Switzerland, Zermatt? Or am I tripping? I think it's Switzerland. I can envision it because I know I've been there. All right, so uh, moving on from the turned edge watch strap, the pros and cons, okay? So the next question is the pros and cons of wallet jigs, why you should or shouldn't buy one. So the pros and cons of wallet jigs and why you should or shouldn't buy one. Okay, so for those of you who don't know what a wallet jig is, essentially a wallet jig is like a gingerbread house, uh, for want of a better word. So you've ever seen those gingerbread houses at Christmas, uh, Christmas time? It's like that, so it's like a roof, like a wooden roof. So it's two planks essentially at 45 degrees with the corner running across the top. It's usually rounded, okay? And the idea is when you create a, a wallet, you have two parts. So you have the lining, the internal part, and the external. If you just glue them together on a flat, okay? So the, the internal, the external, glue together on a flat, when you come to use the wallet, you don't use the wallet fully open all the time, okay? You close the wallet, obviously. When you put your cash and your cards on the inside, you close the wallet. Long wallet, um, double card holder, uh, you know, uh, bifold, etc. 
that's the kind of thing I'm talking about. When you fold it in, in half to put it in your pocket, if you have glue, uh, wallet that's glued on the flat, you have all these creases down the middle. So when you open the wallet again, you'll see all these crease lines, you call it rucking in the industry, but it's just creases on the inside. And one of the benefits of gluing these two parts on that 45 degree angle is because it's half open and half closed, isn't it? 45 degrees. It's not 180 degrees where it's fully open or zero where it's fully closed. It's, you know, that halfway in between. So, or 90 degrees essentially would be, wouldn't it? Um, it's that halfway point. So that is essentially what they're for. And one of the main pros, which you've asked here, the pros and cons of wallet jigs, why you shouldn't or shouldn't. So we're starting with why you should, is it helps to keep that center fold linear running down the wallet. So if you tried to get two parts and glue them on a fold with your fingers, you know, it just wouldn't be very consistent. So the idea of one of these jigs is it keeps that fold line from the, you know, the center of one side to the center of the other. So you have that perfect fold. So it helps to keep things a bit more accurate. Another pro that I've written down is it's easier to tape down on a lining. So if you struggle getting the external on with covered in glue and the internal lining covered in glue and you know you need to move things around, what you can do is create a lining that's oversized so you can tape down the edges and then it's stuck down and it's you know on that curve and it's not moving and then you can take your time putting the external over before you flatten it down and glue it in place, whether you're using PVA or whether you're using uh, a contact adhesive of some kind. Now, so those are the pros. It helps to keep the center line linear. It's easier to tape down the lining. Um, but one of the cons is that not all folds should be set at 45 degrees. So if you have a particular soft wallet, sometimes it's better to instead of um, oh, 90, I keep saying 45, 90 degrees. If you have it set at 90 degrees, sometimes it's better on a softer wallet to have a steeper angle, okay, even like this. And the reason is, sometimes on a soft wallet, it, it can be difficult to get the cards out, okay, especially if the cards are coming out sideways. So if you have a wallet, so this is a wallet, this isn't the jig, this is my fingers are a wallet right now, and it's folded down the center. If it's glued on an extreme fold, it wants to resist that fold. So when you open out like that, it doesn't want to fully open. And what that does is it kind of pushes the lip of the cards out a lot, which makes them easier to extract. This kind of thing is, is what you find out from prototyping a lot, where you create a wallet from a particular type of leather or a particular design with particular dimensions, and you go, I'm really struggling to pull the cards out on the sideways slots. That's quite difficult. How can I tackle that? And you know, how can I change that? And sometimes it's simple as gluing on a more extreme curve to make them stick out a little bit more. It's, it's something that I, I demonstrate in the Stingray card holder course, okay? So that's one of the courses that I have, is how not only how to work with Stingray, how to stitch Stingray, which is like doing the impossible, uh, but elegantly, but how to stitch it, but also um, I demonstrate how to glue at the correct angle using those types of skins so that you can extract cards easily. And I go into much greater depth on how to do that on there, so that's something to check out. So not all folds should be at 45 degrees. Uh, another, another thing to note is, another con, is that as, as far as I know, I haven't gone looking and I haven't come across it, but not all jigs are adjustable. 
So if you want something that's glued on uh, 90 degrees, that's great. But if you want it glued at a different angle, more acute or closer to flat, then it doesn't really offer adjustment. <clears throat> they might be out there, I'm not sure. So, but as far as I know, they're not widely available uh, as an adjustable size. So moving on, tips on using uh, different types of leather in the same project and how to integrate non-leather. Now I have gone into a little bit of this on some of my other Q&A, so I won't go too uh, in depth on them because it's, I've said it more than once, but using different types of leather on different projects. An example would be like the de Havilland travel bag. And I've talked about that many times because it's actually a good example to, to work from when explaining things. But there are certain parts of that project that, where I use vegetable tan leather and there are certain parts of the project where I use chrome tan leather. And that is because some parts need to be firmer and some parts need to be softer. So for example, uh, the zip I have on the outside of the zip, I have a reinforcement of leather. So it's stiffer, which means if I try and pull on the zip and it starts binding a little bit or it gets a little bit more worn out or for whatever reason, it, there's a little bit more stiffness. Um, instead of the soft leather just kind of like moving with the zip as I'm pulling it, because it's flanked by something that's firm and holding steady, it allows it to, to move more freely and feels a little bit more smooth. That's why whenever I'm making something with a zip, I like to have something surrounding it a uh, technique or you know some kind of stiffener or reinforcement that I've employed to make sure that that zip runs nice and smooth. If it's too soft and, and floppy, then it should be easy for the zip to catch and you know it's, uh, it's not as smooth, it doesn't feel as nice. So that area will be uh, vegetable tan leather. The handles are vegetable tan leather, so you know they have that uh, you know much more meaty feel in the hand as it were. So it molds to the hand, it feels more solid. Over time, it's gonna feel better in the hand. So the more you use it, the better it will feel because it starts to take the shape of your hand and how you hold it and how you handle it. Uh, whereas chrome tan leather doesn't really have that benefit so much. So that's something to, uh, to be aware of as well. But the external part of the bag where it's been flipped inside out, I've used chrome tan leather because it's more forgiving for being flipped without having uh, too many creases in the corners especially. The lining on the inside is chrome tan leather because you want something soft and that feels luxurious on the inside. The lining of the pocket, again, is chrome tan leather for the same reason. Very strong, very abrasion resistant, um, so there's benefits to that as well. So tips on using different types of leather. Another one would be don't try and necessarily always try and have different colors. So you might use different kinds of leather from a different animal, for example, or a different tannage, different types of, uh, of tanning. But you could play around with having, you know, a heavy texture on one part and a smooth texture on the other part, even though the colors are matching or monochromatic. So, uh, you know, play around a little bit more with, with, with texture to add contrast rather than just color, which is a bit more obvious. And it just adds something to the design that I think is, um, you know, it's a little detail that just kind of stands out. Now, if you do want to know more information about uh, playing around with colors, I have a blog, obviously it's free, you can go and check it out right now, and I'll, I'll link it below, in fact, where I talk about how to match colors properly. Now, in the industry, there really hasn't been anything um, about what colors work well 
with other colors, um, how to match different shades and different tones, different hues, saturation. There hasn't been really anything in depth on that or anything that I could ever find. There's been, you know, quite a bit about it in, in style, in fashion, in art, but there really hasn't been a transfer to Leathercraft. So I did a blog, created a blog for you guys so that if you want to go outside the box a little bit with colors, so if you're tired of using the kind of like browns, tans, natural undyed and black, which is probably 80 to 90% of what you see in Leathercraft, and you want to not just go with a green wallet, but you want to play around with other colors as well, like green and red in the same wallet, but you don't want it to look like a Christmas tree. How do you adjust it so that the colors work together? And there's all sorts of things, you know, it's, it's quite an in-depth read, but I definitely recommend you look at it because even if you think to yourself, ah, oh, I don't need any, anybody telling me what colors to work with, I do what I feel is right. Sometimes it's better to kind of understand the rules. And as I mentioned earlier, understand the rules before you break them. So at least you're educated on what works so you can go the complete opposite, if you know what I mean, rather than you put something together that nearly works, but it's like, it's like photography. If you take a sideways shot, it looks really dynamic, like something's moving, like there's action. But if you make it very slightly off, it just looks like you can't take a picture. And it's a little bit like that when choosing colors. If you go for something completely wacky and strange, you know that it was purposely built into the design. Um, whereas if you do something that's just slightly off, it just likes, yeah, doesn't really work. So knowing what works so you can break those rules or you can follow them is really up to you on color matching what works well with what and what doesn't work with, uh, uh, what colors don't work well together. So go and check that out. Uh, so that's tips on using different colors in the same projects. So the next one is ideal lighting setup for pricking irons. Interesting one. I did talk about this in another blog Building up these blogs now, it's uh, a lot of these questions like, it's in the blog. <laughs> but uh, this is one, uh, one of them in the blog in, I think it's called, Are You Making These Five Prickin' Iron Mistakes? I actually mentioned it in the previous q and I remember that. So uh, I have a prickin' iron here. Now, if you're right-handed, and I'm right-handed, okay, so this is my right hand. If you're right-handed, Ideally, you want light coming from all around you. So right now I have light coming from above, in front of me, from here, from here, from all different directions. So it's great, okay? But your main light, your strongest light should be kind of the one or two o'clock position on your right. So if you're right-handed, the one or two o'clock position. So in front of you, slightly to your right. This is your leather edge. This is all your, where all your leather is, say this is your panel. Right now, if there's light coming in from this side, I can see all the teeth, all the prongs on the pricking iron, but the shadow of the pricking iron is going this way, this way, away from the line right behind it, which I'm following. So I could be following the crease line that I've put in. I could be following the line that I've put in with the wing dividers. If, if the light is straight ahead where you are, it's casting a shadow that comes out over the line that I'm trying to follow, so I can't see it properly, which means I could go off very easily. So if you're the light, if I turn it this way, so the light's hitting here, I can see that, the shadow is coming this way, and I can see the line that I'm following clearly. If you're left-handed, you turn the piece of leather around, you've got your edge here, you've got all your leather over there. The light now is coming from 
the 10 to 11 o'clock position. Okay, so that kind of area, so in front to my left, so I can clearly see it. The rule of thumb is, can you see the prongs? Can you see the line that you're following? If the answer to that is yes, you've got the lighting correct. Okay, so it depends on how complex you wanna go. So if you're right-handed, catch light, the main light from uh, the one to two o'clock position. Uh, if you're left-handed, the 10 to 11 o'clock position. So, last question now. Um, why do you think the Turen handbag has been so popular? This is a really great, great question, and it's something that I've noticed too, and I think there's an, uh, a number of reasons, uh, but this, these are my thoughts. So the Turin handbag, for those of you who don't know, um, was a course that I recently came out with to help people to understand how to create a luxury handbag, how to install gussets, how to install a bag base, how to install a lining, uh, how to ins install a zip, tubular handles, uh, reinforcements, where to use them, stitching, everything's included. It's a multi-part course. Um, it's, you know, by far the best course, uh, the best response from students at the moment. In fact, there's so many people that have actually successfully made it that I started putting up all the people who have made it and now it's just getting more and more numerous. I'd, my feed on Instagram would just be all student success stories, which would be wonderful, but nobody would know what I do for a living really. Uh, it would just be other people's handbags. So I've had to stop doing that, but it has been very successful. A number of reasons. One, I, I, I think I'll give myself some props here. I think I, I'm, I'm trying to get more and more feedback from students all the time. I'm always trying to learn, always trying to improve. That's something that's kind of inbuilt into me and, and why I've kind of done well with Leathercraft in general is I'm, I'm never satisfied, I'm always, but I'm happy being unsatisfied. I'm happy, but unsatisfied. And that dissatisfaction always gets me trying to improve. So I'm always trying to make it better so that I can take what I know and then transfer that to the student's mind with the least loss of information possible. So that's the kind of lenses that I view everything through when creating courses. I wanna make sure that I can transfer skills effectively through a camera without actually having to be there so that the person that who's receiving the information understands it, processes it, and is able to then use that information to successfully complete a bag. So I'm always looking for student feedback, where, you know, what they liked, what they didn't like about it, what they thought was great, what, what they thought they, you know, I could do to make it a better experience for them. It's something that I'm always trying to work on. And, and I enjoy doing that. I enjoy like trying to incrementally improve constantly, uh, whether it's, you know, the videography, whether it's the lighting, whether it's the explanations, whether it's the sequences. I'm always trying to look at what I'm doing with, if I was a student, what questions would I have in my mind right now? And then aim to answer those questions. How can I do it without over explaining and boring people? And how can I do it without being too brief that they don't fully understand and grasp? So there's always that fine balance. Um, so that, you know, it's incrementally better courses, but um, something that I built into the design was a little bit more forgiveness. I wanted this to be that beautiful, classic, clean line bag, very elegant, very sleek, which really had that, that finesse that could hold the title of a luxury handbag. And that other people, even if they didn't have a lot of experience, maybe they've only made a card holder or a wallet that they could make. And what I did was create a design that could add a little bit more forgiveness. And what do I mean by forgiveness? Well, if the gusset was five millimeters too high and you cut it wrong, 
it would still work. If it was a few millimeters too wide, it would still work. Uh, if the panels were too high, it would still work. If you made the panels and the, the base a couple of millimeters too wide, it would still work. The flaps at the top, the handles, the attachments, it would still work. Uh, and you probably wouldn't be able to, to tell. You might find out afterwards by measuring it, but it would be very difficult to tell. And that kind of forgiveness built into the design has allowed more people to be able to do it. And it's not giving people a false sense of craftsmanship and where their levels are actually at. And yet they go and make that and then they can't replicate it because the amount that you're going to learn by going from step one to finally cleaning and polishing the bag and then presenting it to the world or yourself or a friend or a customer, uh, the amount that you're gonna know at the end of it, you're not gonna be the same person that you were at the beginning of the journey. Like you're gonna, you're gonna go through a series of things, but I take you through it step by step, explaining every single process. If there's something you're familiar with, you can skip ahead. But there's a lot of new things in there, new techniques for stitching the gussets in, for example, so the stitches on the inside exactly match the stitches on the outside. You can't tell which one is the face side, which one is the rear side. Um, so there's been some new techniques and new developments that I've actually integrated in there, but in a way that people can understand and replicate. And it's still blown me away the, the level of skill that some of, these, some of my students have had, um, where they've come from and where they are now after the Turin handbag is absolutely incredible. It blows me away. Um, but another one outside of the forgiveness of the design is uh, the PDF template. So uh, in some of my earlier courses, like the de Havilland travel bag, I actually teach how to make the pattern. So you can then take those design elements of pattern making and then take what you've come up with your own uh, designs in your mind and then use the pattern making skills. So I've actually taught that for the de Havilland travel bag. So it doesn't come with a PDF. My idea behind that was to teach people the pattern making side of things. If I just supply PDFs on every course, then people would just become reliant. So I want people to be a bit more self-reliant in that sense, so they can literally make their visions come to life. Um, but in this course, to simplify things and to allow people who previously wouldn't be able to do that to make this bag uh, and, and elevate themselves, I created a PDF pattern they can print out paste it onto card, cut it out, and then just cut out your templates from that. So it, even though the design is very forgiving, um, it just, it's a lot more difficult to get wrong when you have the pattern that you can print out as well. But people have successfully shrunk down the pattern on their printing machine, like printed at a half size and made these little mini bags. It's just so cool. I, <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, it really surprised me like how people have really made the design their own and they've still managed to finish it and complete it without any issues and it's uh, it's good design. But that concludes the Q&A session, guys. Thank you for listening in. Now remember, if you want to get your questions in for next month, don't forget to follow me on Instagram, at Leathercraft Masterclass. Turn on your notifications for live so that when I go live, you get a little dingling uh, so that you know that I've gone live. But also the day before I start collecting all the questions that people have, all the burning questions that they've been holding onto in their mind, they can just throw them at me and then uh, you know, I can bring them into here. I usually select around 10 and obviously uh, as you've seen, I'm doing some live questions as well so that I can uh, talk to people in real time. But you can be one of those people in real time 
uh, by following me on Instagram. And don't forget, there will be an audio version of this where I can uh, talk to you in your ear holes uh, and, and whisper sweet nothings about Leathercraft, okay? So <laughs> don't forget there is that. Now on leathercraftmasterclass.com right now is a guide on how to select leather and how to buy tools correctly. So there's a video course on how to select the best leathers for you so that you know what to choose from through a series of different tests that I'm gonna teach you how to do so that you can get samples of leather, do your tests, and, you, and then you can make your decisions before you even have to part with your money. So the idea is to give you this information, to educate you on what to look out for, what to avoid, tannery tricks, all that kind of thing. Get your samples in, do your tests, and then you can go, I like this leather, it passed all the tests, I can then buy that. So it just saves you so much money because there's nothing worse than buying expensive leather and it turns out to be absolute rubbish. It does happen. Uh, the other is the Tool Buyer's Guide, which is a 20 page article which teaches you what tools you need as well as what tools you don't. So again, it's a money saving technique is to go through the Tool Buyer's Guide, 20 page article, and depending on where you are, beginner, intermediate, or advanced, you know which tools you're going to need so that you can get started. And if you want to elevate your techniques and you want to go from basic leather work to luxury leather goods, then I have a series of courses for you on leathercraftmasterclass.com linked below where we start with the techniques on hand stitching, skiving, sharpening, edge finishing, edge paint, burnishing, and all different techniques. Then we move on to the smaller projects, intermediate and more advanced. So you can then grow with the masterclass at the same time and elevate your skills. So if you wanna go from basic to advanced and learn in hours what some people take years to understand, then the Leathercraft Masterclass courses are exactly what you need. So don't forget to like, subscribe, and I will see you again next month, same time. Thank you for watching and I'll see you soon.